positive. I would be doing a lot of reading to you from books and and Bible, and I've got a lot to say about this subject called Noah's Ark, but it's a, it incorporates a whole lot more than just Noah's Ark. So what I want to, to, to say to you is that, you know, we, we made this commitment to um, get the Holy Manifest uh, printed and published. We made a commitment to that. And uh, we have never given up that uh, desire. And... Uh, uh, by the way, I want to thank you for a bit of any of you that don't know. Very interesting that um, Tom Cooper wrote email to John and said, I need to get hold of your dad. I want him to be sure he knows that I want to be a part of the Holy Manifest. And so we just haven't had a chance to talk yet, but uh, it, I think it's interesting that people still have that, that love and desire in their heart to do the right thing. Yeah. Or the Jews essentially dedicate their life for. Now, some people would say, "Well, why, why do you need a holy manifest? Why is it such an important big thing? You've got the Bible." Well, I want to cover a little bit of that today. You see, there are masses of people out there that are not fluent in understanding the Bible. Uh, because basically they go to church and they basically what they are told by the ministers of the various denominations, they just accept that as truth. But more and more and more uh, people that uh, have taken the time to be profound readers and that have used the slightest bit of logic and intellect have begun to have more and more difficulties with believing the Bible. And it's reaching... Uh, uh, mammoth proportions of people that are having uh, difficulty in reading the Bible, and uh, I want to share some things. Uh, and it's going to it's going to seem as we start this off, we're going to almost seem like we're being anti, instead of you know a positive. Let's sweep into the next new year with all these positive things. It's going to almost seem like we might be knocking the Bible, but at no time am I ever knocking the Bible. I love the Bible and believe in it. But I think that that does not excuse us for being oblivious to problems in the Bible that, that unless they are made to be understood, uh, thousands and millions of people are going to uh, continue and ultimately fall away uh, from believing it as, as anything other than the folklore. Now, this fellow here, if you ever want to get a copy of it, you're certainly welcome to, it's called the Bible Myth. Some of you may have it. And it's the African origins of the Jewish people. This is some of his ideas on it. His name is Gary Greenberg. Uh, he's not just a piece of junk. He's the president of the Biblical Archaeological Society of New York. That is a huge position for anybody uh, in the Christian uh, kingdom. That is a huge position. When you're ahead of the Archaeological Society in New York, uh, that puts you almost over the museums and, and over all kinds of, of things. He, he's an absolutely top uh, scholarly educated man. Uh, it doesn't mean that everything that he says is correct, uh, but he's, he's not a dumb man. And I want to read a few things in this book. Um, 
because I think it's important. Um, the Bible tells us that the Hebrew nation originated with Abraham in Mesopotamia, Ur, the Chaldees. To be specific, from Ur, he and his family traveled to Haran. From there to Canaan, where God promised him that his descendants would rule over the land. This covenant passed on to his son Isaac, then to Isaac's son Jacob, later to Israel. Jacob had 12 sons, and one of them, Joseph, became prime minister of Egypt. At Joseph's invitation, uh, Jacob and his family, less than 70 males and all, left Canaan and moved to Egypt. At first they were warmly received, but as their number rapidly swelled, the goodwill turned to fear and anger. Israel soon found itself condemned to forced labor. Eventually, a hero named Moses arose from the enslaved ranks and challenged the mighty Pharaoh to a duel of gods. Egypt's multitude of false idols were no match for the true God of Moses. And the Israelite hero triumphantly led his people out of the country toward the promised land of Canaan. Just 40 years later, the Israelites marched into the new homeland and by force of arms imposed the territorial claims on the native population. Unfortunately, there is not a shred of evidence outside the Bible to corroborate these claims. Why is there no archaeological record of Israel and the Hebrew people prior to the 13th century? Why did the so-called ten lost tribes disappear from history without an archaeological trace of their existence? <laughs> Okay. Can't read everything in all these books, so we we would not, we'd be a long time ever getting out of here. But there's some interesting things you need to hear. Um, all right. Um, what this talks about is that a lot of the things that we take for granted, um, they have no archaeological evidence. No other kind of proof either that they that they even existed. Um, which you can say that's not important, but um, actually to a lot of people it is important. And like the Bible does say, prove all things. You know, Israelites allegedly entered Egypt with only about seventy males. According to the Bible, they lived mostly in a small territory territorial area of Gotham, but they left Egypt with over 600,000 males and their families. It seems inconceivable that over this time, in a small territory, such a large number of people could have maintained anything like a tribal structure. By that time in America alone, they practiced common and biblical gene uh, genealogy, would certainly have wiped out anything resembling clear, lineage family divisions. What he's getting at is he's trying to show that this thing about the 12 tribes, uh, you know, is not possible. He basically says here, um, the 12 tribes is, is actually Egyptian mythology. The 12 tribes of Israel never existed. goes on to say something we've, uh, most people that have done much reading have heard for years, that Moses could not have been the sole uh, writer of the uh, five books of the, of, of the Old Testament, Torah, because uh, of 
information that is contained within the book itself uh, proves that it couldn't have been done by Moses alone, that it was done by at least five other entities, five other entities uh, were involved. And uh, uh, so uh, that's not new stuff, that's old stuff that's been around forever, but it's never gone away. That is that is uh, continued to uh, uh, remain current, and uh, you know this person just has to has to understand that. Now, let's see, there's a couple of things I want to see if I can find. Uh, Genesis 11:10 says Arafat said was born two years after the flood, in Shem's 100th year. But Genesis 5:32 says Shem was born in Noah's 500th year. 2005 BC, which makes it his 100th year to uh, 2105, the year of the flood. The two passages contradict each other, leaving the pre-flood and post-flood out of sync by two years. Things like that I've read for years that they've never ever bothered me, but I'm always aware that you know that they are there, and uh, I think it's. I think it's important now. I want our group to start, you know, thinking a different way. Very interesting. Um, uh, I've had a recent talk with John, and uh, John has had incredible changes happen to him, just uh, just major. And they have to do with things he believes and doesn't believe, and not that we're agreeing on everything. Hey, some of the really far out things that I've said from the pulpit. Um, saying a lot of these things right now. And one of the things that he told me was that he thinks that in the Holy Manifest, I should take out every scripture from the Bible. And it should just be written as Holy Manifest because he has found so much fault with the Bible that he's even having a problem reading it now. And of course, I don't agree with that, and that's not going to be something we'll do. But I think that it is interesting that there's people... Uh, you know, that, that within our own uh, family of people that we've known and lived with and our kinship to that have had turnarounds like that. And they're really looking at some things, you know, in different light because uh, they've been stirred up. <laughs> Amen? And uh, now, what do I think about that happening with him? I think that's wonderful. I personally think that that is a plus. And I think he needs to go there, and I think it's good that he is going there, and then I think that it will modify. But I think you have to go there. You have to understand that that the Bible was put together by all kinds of situations, even including some high-pitched uh, uh, Hebrew salespeople um, who robbed myths and stories and put it all together while they were in Babylon because they didn't have a t they didn't have a temple, they didn't have a land, they didn't have nothing, and they had to have something to sell the the people. And what they needed was a fantastic uh, storybook, and uh, you know, and they they put some fantastic uh, storybook things together. Now, is that bad? Is that wrong? Well, like I've always said, if it's not true in this world, it's true in some world. You know, I don't really have a problem with that. Because I believe that God can ordain everything that comes out of your mind and out of your mouth. And you can write something that you just think is totally only myth and not true, but it can have truth in it, and it's meant to be written, and it's got things that are going to help 
to future generations. So I just look at everything, not as an accident or something to look down on and say, oh, my God, uh, this is horrible. I'm throwing this away. Throw nothing away. I just might not, I just think about torquing it up a little bit. <laughs> Torque it up a little bit and make it work. Amen? Oh, yeah. No, God's like that. Do you know that? I mean, uh, he didn't go out and choose an oak tree to make a man. He went and picked dirt, dust, you know, to make a man. I mean, that's the emblem of it, however you want to apply that. But still, that's the symbol of it, the emblem of it, you know. From dust thou was taken, and the dust thou shalt return. So, all interesting. Well, we're done talking here today. Some of you people are going to be, are going to be affected. You will be affected. Okay, let me see what else I can find here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm not going to read all these complaints because it's too extensive. But uh, there are some important ones that I want to get in. And then we'll get out of this and get into some other stuff. This fellow has a real problem with... Um, how the exodus could possibly have taken place, the way they said. And uh, a lot of people have a problem with that, how you could put that many people out into the desert and survive, and, you know, all of those kind of things. All right. Um, basically, believes the Hebrews were a combination of Phoenicians and Egyptians. You know, they were just sort of, that's what they really were, and, and they started became their own little people. Uh, I don't have anything wrong. I don't have anything against that. I, I think there's probably um, a lot of possibility of that. Uh, the Phoenicians were known as the Sea People, and they just traveled from place to place a lot, you know. Uh, and hang on there. We're going to get there, and we're going to be doing a lot of this. And I'm going to be thumbing through all kinds of books. And uh, I didn't sit down and write out all the pages uh, in some succinct, proper order, uh, like David would have done. Uh, I just uh, wanted to be uh, a loose uh, goose up here today. And some people might think I'm, you know, I'm a little whacked up, but I mean, that's, that's okay. They should think of it. I have a problem with you know. I don't have any problems. All of the things we want to say and do. I want to find this one particular one because it's just such a dog the way he wrote that. I thought it was in the beginning. Maybe it was and I missed it. Maybe it was and I missed it. I think it was in the beginning and I must have missed it. Turn the page or something like that. Now, it's a little bit unfair to the guy to pick the highlights out like this because then it doesn't give you a chance to you know, for him to make all his points and give his proof. But I, I, my point is not to try to substantiate all the things he's saying, but to show that there are some fairly uh, well-versed, educated people that have these kinds of, um, of ideas. Uh, you know, very strong on the, uh, the idea that the 12 tribes of Israel never did exist. Uh, here's, a, here's one of them I want to read. Um, here's what he writes. He says, there are two stories of creation, two stories of the covenant between God and Abraham, two stories in which Abraham told a foreign king that his wife was his sister, 
two stories of Abraham naming Isaac, two stories of how many animals were taken aboard Noah's Ark. Uh, even in translation, many of these variations conflict uh, and are obvious. Um, the first two chapters of Genesis illustrates this prob problem. Uh, Genesis 1 places the arrival of man and woman after the creation of other creatures and plant life. But in Genesis 2, man appears before uh, creatures and plant life, and the woman appears afterwards. Of course, we sort of understand the reason of knowing that. But without the manifest teaching, person w a person would not know that. Amen. So, so those are the reasons that are so important. Important to have. What did I do, lose a bowl? Yeah. Oh, I'm sure Sai will get me another one. Anyway, that was one of the main ones I was looking for to read. Um, let me flick here to see if there's anything else of this book I want to read. Guy, uh, he's, he's quite a writer. And when you're done reading what he has to say, uh, you, will be, you will be affected. Um, I read this some, quite some long time ago, uh, and I put it in the front of it. As a statement of record, I do not agree with a large portion of this book. Nevertheless, many statements here reveal the confusion of the Bible's record if interpretation is based on only literal aspects. Thank God for the Holy Manifest Revelation, Jehovah. Um, a very well-educated man who has gone to extensive lengths to establish his concepts, but which extremes would call history to be rewritten. Um, too hot. Oh, too hot. All right. So I, I found those things very, very, very interesting. Now I'm going to read another piece of anti-literature. Uh, call this one here done. Put, set that down over there. And read another piece of anti-literature. This is about the flood. Now this, whoever, uh, this was written by uh, in 1998, so it's not that long ago. Uh, and by a Mark Isaac. It's called Problems with a Global Flood. Um, creationist models are often criticized for being too vague uh, to have any pre uh, pre uh, predictive value. A literal interpretation of the flood story in Genesis, however, does imply certain physical consequences that can be tested against what we actually observe. And um, go on here now. Uh, how was the ark loaded? Noah had only seven days to load the ark. Genesis seven four through ten. If only fifteen thousand seven hundred and sixty-four animals were to be loaded aboard the ark, one animal would have to be loaded every thirty-eight seconds without let-up. Since there were likely many more animals than that to load, the time pressures would have been even worse. Now that's a pretty interesting statement, wouldn't you say? I think it is. Uh, when I when I read something like that, I find that very interesting. And I think that uh, you know the Bible says you, you've got to prove all things. You've got to be able to get an answer. And here's someone, mathematician, and they they know because they have the size of the ark. And they know roughly what the dimensions are. And depending on what, what the cubit was, if the cubit was 16 and a half inches or 18 inches or 21 some inches, uh, they can take all three scenarios. 
to get the different uh, length, length and width and so forth. Um, because, you know, I'm doing a little bit of math, and this guy does some math, and he says, hey, you know, come on, how in the world are they going to be able to, in seven days time, and that's working day and night for seven days, you know, every 38 seconds for, for day and night without any let up, no time to rest, no time to eat, no time to go to the toilet, that, that's 38 seconds without stopping. That's what it's going to take to get just a little over 15,000 creatures loaded, you know. Remember, these aren't like cows. You don't herd in the the lions and the, you know what I mean, all these different animals together. Come on, come on, you know. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be too smart. Okay, that's good stuff. That's, that's what this guy's coming up with. Keep these things in mind. You might have, you might have questions to ask. Uh, then they go into the thing of caring for the animals. and That's pretty interesting, too, because they go into all of the, the different types of things that how animals have to be fed, and that if they don't have that, they'll die. Uh, and that it's quite more delicate than people would even imagine. Uh, that, that, you know, and uh, it, it, I don't take the time to go into that. Um, the flood. Where did the water come from, and where did it go? Then people have have uh, have answers to these questions, but none which considered all the implications of their model. A few of the commonly cited models are listed below. Vapor canopy, proposed by Wickham and Morris, uh, proposes that much of the water was suspended overhead to the 40 days of rain, uh, which caused the flood, uh, except for the following objections are covered in detail by Brown. How was the water suspended? And what caused it to fall at, at once when it did? A canopy holding an equivalent to more than 40 feet of, of water were, uh, were uh, part of its uh, atmosphere. It would raise the atmospheric pressure accordingly, raising oxygen and nitrogen levels to toxic levels. Now, uh, I just from, you know, calculus and things that I have done on this subject, uh, I know what he is saying, and I know that that is true, that, uh, that almost any type of hydraulic or any type of, of change like that uh, does uh, create pressure, and pressure creates heat. And then heat it checks, it changes uh, the balance of the chemistry. And, and so, you know, he's saying, you know, that this guy had a great answer, but he says technically it wouldn't work because if he was able to increase the water to where there was an average of, say, 40 feet worth of water. And later you'll see that, like, for instance, like what they say right now, if all the water in the atmosphere, all the water in the atmosphere uh, fell to the earth, it would cover the, the earth 30 feet. It would not cover the highest mountains. 30 feet, that's it. All the water, all the water that's in all the atmosphere, it only it only reached 30 feet high, okay. But if you even increase that another uh, from 30 to 40, uh, that's that's that alone is enough to increase the pressure, uh, so that you could have uh, toxic oxygen nitrogen problems. Um, Hydroplate. Well, Brown model proposed that flood water came from a layer of water about 10 miles underground which was released by a catastrophic rupture of the Earth's crust, shot above the Earth's atmosphere and fell as rain. 
how was the water contained? Rock, at, at least the rock which made up Earth's crust, doesn't float. The water would have been forced to the surface long before Noah's time, uh, or Adam's time for that matter. Even a mile deep, the Earth is boiling hot, and thus reservoirs of water would be superheated. Further heat would be added by the energy of the water falling from above the atmosphere. As with the vapor canopy model, Noah would have been poached. Where is the evidence? The escaping waters would have eroded the sides of the fissures, uh, producing poorly stored, uh, uh, basaltic erosion, uh, de erosional deposits. There would be concentrated, uh, these would be concentrated uh, mainly near the fissures, um, and would, uh, uh, about thousands of miles along with the water, Noah would not have to water about fall, would not have to worry about falling rocks along with the rain. Such deposits would quite would would be quite noticeably, but have never been seen. Um, comet Ken Holbein supposed that the flood water came from a comet, which broke up and fell on the earth. Again, this has the problem of the heat from the gravitational potential energy. The water would be steam by the time it reached the surface of the Earth. Um, runaway subdu subduction. Um, created the runaway subduction model, which proposes that the pre-flood lithosphere, that's the lithosphere of the ocean floor, be intensive and the underlying mantle began sinking. The heat released in the process decreased the viscosity of the mantle so that the process accelerated uh, catastrophically. All the original lithosphere became subducted. When something is subducted, uh, say like you have titanic plates, and say uh, this is a plate and that's a plate, and they're together like that, and then the pressure keeps pushing and pushing, and finally one goes under the other, that's subduction when you're talking geology. And uh, that's why later you'll find that they used to think, and until fairly recently, that the tectonic plate system was what actually caused mountains to come up. Uh, but they actually found out that, uh, that uh, there are only, there's a limit of um, something like 220 miles uh, that the effect of causing mountain ranges to rise is limited to uh, in any one occurrence. Uh, that tectonic plates mostly go into subduction, slide them to the other. Uh, it is a different process that actually creates mountains. And these are created from plumes that that uh, come up uh, from the, the core. We'll, do, we'll get into that later. Okay. So anyway, then he doesn't think that that would work on the comet. And the subduction thing, he doesn't uh, have too great an idea on that. All the original lithosphere would be subducted. The rising magma would replace it, uh, raise the ocean floor, causing sea levels to rise and boiling off enough of the ocean to cause 150 days of rain. When it cooled, the ocean floor lowered again, and the flood waters receded. Sedimentary mountains such as the Sierras and the Andes rose by the by the flood. Oh, this is what this guy is saying how it happened. The main difficulty of this theory is that it admittedly doesn't work without miracles. The thermal diffusivity of the Earth, for example, would have increased 10,000-fold to get the subduction rates proposed. And miracles are also necessary to cool the new ocean floor and to raise 
sedimentary mountains in months rather than in millions of years that it would ordinarily take. And um, and then it goes into some other more mathematical kinds of things, which I think without a chalkboard it'd be boring to you. So, um, then there's all there's all there's a few other ideas, new ocean bases, and uh, but they basically um, say that you know that those are stupid ideas we're talking about. We call themselves scientists, they're creationist scientists. I don't know what they're talking about. Um, how do you explain the relative ages of the mountains? For example, why weren't the Sierra Nevada, Nevadas eroded as much as the Appalachians during the flood? Why is there no evidence of a flood in the ice core series? Ice cores from Greenland have been taken that date back more than 40,000 years by counting annual, annual layers. Uh, a worldwide flood would be expected to leave a layer of sediments, noticeable changes in uh, salinity and oxygen isotope ratios, fractures from buoyancy and thermal stresses, a hiatus in trapped air bubbles, and possibly other evidence. Why doesn't such evidence show up? Aren't we sounding anti here tonight? <laughs> My goodness sake. How are the polar ice caps, caps even possible? Such a mass of water as the flood would have provided sufficient buoyancy to float the polar caps off their beds and break them up. They wouldn't regrow quickly. In fact, the Greenland ice cap would not regrow at all under modern climatic conditions. Why did the flood not leave traces on the sea floor? A year-long flood should be recognized in sea bottom cores by uncharacteristic amounts of terrestrial detritus, uh, different grain size distributions of the sediment. A shift in oxygen isotope ratios, uh, rain has different isotope compositions from seawater, a massive extinction, and other characteristics. Why do none of these show up? Now, I'm not saying that I agree with everything that you're saying that they're, that, that, that they're correct on. But this is what, you know, some people are saying. Now, this one here I find very interesting. And uh, this, is, this, is a very, this one and the ice cores, in my opinion, are two very valid, uh, uh, potent reasons uh, to try to prove that, that the world flood didn't happen. Why is there no evidence of a flood in tree, rain, and tree ring dating? Tree records go back more than 10,000 years with no evidence of a catastrophic, uh, 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 of, of a, uh, catastrophic uh, event during that time. I think that's very, very interesting. Um, the other day we were watching um, something on Discovery Channel about um, um, what they posed as an extraterrestrial visit uh, near an army base or somewhere not too far from one. And... Uh, one of the things that they did uh, a year or two later was check the the rings and well, some of the trees nearby where where the uh, the apparently one of the uh, saucers had struck down a, a tree and and it was still standing but it had been broken and they checked to see if it showed any sign of that effect and and then they showed it right in the corner there where the effect of of that uh, strike was actually addressed in the core. That's how sensitive trees are to things that happen to them. Uh, I think that's I think that's very, very interesting. That's
You know, you don't want to be the kind of person that you just believe what you want to believe. You want to be the person that, that you know, like, like you believe because you checked it out. The Bible says prove all things. You want to be a person that, that can substantiate what you believe because you, you put some, some testing to do it. And you're not just saying, ah, yeah, I believe that. I mean, I don't think people can anymore say, I believe it because the Bible says so. Because the way the Bible says it is very confusing without, without interpretation to know. And I think the Bible is very much like, like uh, the gift of the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues. The Bible says that if there is not an interpreter present, uh, the person that has an unction to speak in tongues should withhold their tongues and not speak it. Should only speak when they know there's an interpreter present that can interpret the tongues. And I think that that same thing applies to the Bible, that a person should not be too um, em- emphatic about what the Bible says uh, if it hasn't been witnessed by by someone who can have the gift of interpretation. And that was one of the great things about um, uh, David was that uh, he was recognized by the children of Israel, uh, uh, be it whatever David was, with all his faults and problems. Uh, he was understood to, to be the light of Israel. And if he died, they would lose that light. And they, they valued that as the most valuable commodity that could they possibly ever have. And one time when he went out to war, and they were fighting against some of Goliath's brothers, and this one brother was determined to try to kill David, and came very close to it, would have killed him if one of David's arm bearers did not intercede and kill that that. Uh, brother uh, of uh, Goliath. And uh, then after that they said, you, you know, you're not going back out the war anymore. You know, you're the, you're, the, you're the light of Israel. If anything happens to you, our light is going to be stuffed out. It didn't mean that they didn't believe there wouldn't be other men of God sent to them to, to give light, but they understood that sometimes light doesn't just come uh, uh, several times in a generation. And and that once you recognize that type of thing, you have to hold on to it dearly, and uh, and you can't do like uh, like uh, Miriam and Aaron did with Moses, uh, where they found a fault with him because they thought he was uh, getting too interested in the Ethiopian woman, and uh, they wanted to just practically kick him off his job, and didn't matter that he had done all the miracles and had all the glory of God and and the anointing of God, they wanted to do that, and, 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 and God was so disgusted. God almost was like saying, step aside, I'll take care of this sister and brother of yours. And of course, you know, uh, I said, no, I mean Moses. Moses did not want anything to happen to his, 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 them, and they, you know, he stood up for him. But the thing of it is, is that <clears throat> we have to consider that. We have to be very aware of that, you know. Okay. <clears throat> Look at the more stuff here. This is a very interesting one. <clears throat> this is really interesting. Now, the creationists, when they have uh, geologically, uh, geographically discovered these uh, bones 
of mastodons and whales and and uh, and uh, dinosaurs just rolled up by the thousands up on top of mountains and they said, there it is, that's the flood of Noah. That's what does it. And and the flood came and and it it washed, you know, it just destroyed the dinosaurs and it destroyed all these people. There it is, the proof of it. There's the remains are up on the mountains. You can see them all over the world, and it's true. They're all over the world. How many people have heard that before? Raise your hand if you have. How many people have never ever heard about about a dinosaur being washed up onto the mountains? Raise your hand. Never ever heard that before. I didn't know that. Okay, well that's amazing. Now that is huge. There's, there's, it's huge. I mean, there's, there's not, there's not thousands of them. There's millions of them. They're found washed up, just up on the mountains all over the world. And so, the creationists say that's what happened from the flood. So then, this fellow says, "Now wait a minute." So then, Noah was instructed to take so many pairs of everything and have them on board. And where are the, the dinosaurs? Because he should have had some of them on board if they were alive at the time of the flood. <laughs> because he's claiming that these were all destroyed, but then there should have been some of them left, left alive. So then that means that the dinosaurs would have been alive at the same time of the flood of Noah based on what the creationists are saying. And unfortunately, the creationists are making the Bible believers and the Christian people look like dumbheads, like numbskulls. They are. They're, they're, they're going for ideas that are so stupid. Now, this, these are never things that we have ever taught. And I want to explain some of this stuff to you so you have an understanding how, to, how it, you know, it has happened. So, uh, you know, like, like uh, we need to know. We need to say, well, then what did cause those bones by the millions of them, you know, the millions of them to wash up on mountains tops. Oh, we need to we need to talk about that. And we will. Okay. Um, <coughs> come coral reefs, hundreds of feet thick. How many people know what a coral reef is? Okay. Coral reefs, hundreds of feet thick, and miles long, were preserved intact with other fossils below them. Why, if the, the ground was heaved up and everything moved away, some of the creation would say, why then is there all kinds of coral beds that have never uh, been affected by the flood? Why is that? How could that be? Pretty strong notion. Um, um, very interesting thing on fossil pollen. Um, Fossil pollen is, is, is uh, one of the uh, real important indicators of different levels of strata. Each plant has different and distinct pollen and uh, pollen, however you like to say it. And, and uh, by telling which plants produced the fossil pollen, it's easy to see what the climate was like in the different strata. And then they, they basically can show that uh, some of those things are missing from the, the, the geological record. Um, uh, uh, no, that's not right. We basically could say those things are in the geological record, and if they are, then that proves that there was a, a study over many, many centuries, uh, different kinds of stratus laid down, and not all laid down at one time. 
Did everyone follow that? Yeah. I sort of fumbled, fumbled around to get to that, but uh, I think you get the idea. lived in the same niches as present animals didn't survive as well. And they name a few so forth. Okay, they're explaining here that uh, limestone, uh, certain kinds of rocks are, are formed from, from plants and animal bodies. And um, uh, to reach uh, it takes so long uh, for that change uh, in which the deterioration eventually leads to a limestone state. And that uh, if you have just huge amounts of the limestone, hundreds of feet high, then um, that limestone has, has been added on to. Uh, as the different ages of time has passed, uh, and and that's what has kept making it get taller and bigger and taller and bigger. And they're saying that you know there's no way that all of that limestone could have been all formed at one time during just one flood. Some some interesting things. All right. Well, here's another good one. How could a, a, a flood deposit layered fossil forest? Stratigraphic um, sections showing a dozen or more mature forests layered atop each other, all with upright trunks, in-place roots, and well-developed soil appear in many locations. One example is jogging section along the Bay of Fundy. Uh, shows a continuous section, uh, 2,750 meters thick, along a 48-kilometer sea cliff, with multiple places forest, some separate by hundreds of feet in strata. Um, creation is point to logs sinking in a lake below Mount St. Helens as an example of how a flood can deposit vertical trunks. But uh, deposition of flood fails to explain the roots, the soil, the layering, and other features found in such places. Don't want to spend all my time just on one thing here. A thousand centimeters length of the Arctic coastal plain, according to experts in Leningrad, contains 500,000 tons of cuts. Yeah. Even assuming that the entire population was preserved, you seem to be saying that Russia had wall-to-wall -wall mammoths before this event. <laughs> Scientific creationists interpret the fossils found in the Earth's rocks as remains of animals that perished in the... Um, uh, Natchian deluge. Uh, ironically, they often cite the sheer number of fossils and fossil graveyards as evidence for the flood. In particular, creationists seem enamored by the Karoo Formation in Africa, which is estimated to contain the remains of 800 billion vertebrae animals. Uh, as pseudoscientists, creationists dare not test this major hypothesis that all the fossilized animals died in the flood. Um, <laughs> um, Robert Sloan, a paleontologist 
at the University of Minnesota has studied the Karoo Formation. He asserts, asserts that the animals fossilized there range from the size of a small lizard to the size of a cow, with the average animal perhaps the size of a fox. Uh, uh, Minnett's work with the calculator shows that if 800 billion animals in the Peru Formation could be resurrected, there would be 21 of them for every acre of land on Earth. <laughs> 21 of them for every acre of land on Earth. So, you know, we have five acres out here in front. So, multiply, you have, you know, like over 100 animals out here on this five acres, and every place else that you look, there'd be another 100 uh, based on that kind of uh, logic for the amount of bones that they found. Uh, pretty interesting. Then when the flood began, there must have been at least 2,100 million animals per, per acre. Okay, we're getting through it. Then he quotes the Bible, Genesis 7.23, meaning God. He blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the ground. The flood was as described. That must have been an understatement. Many plants would be killed by being submerged for a few months. This is especially true if they were soaked in salt water. Some mangroves, coconuts, and other coastal seeds have seed which could be expected to supply to divide the flood itself, but what are the rest? Most seeds would have been buried many feet, even miles under sediment, deep enough to prevent spouting. Um, all kinds of things like that they've got. How did all the fish survive? Some require cool, clear water, some need blackish water, some need ocean water, some need water even saltier. Um, how did diseases survive? Now they say if there was only eight persons that were on the on the ship, that some of these diseases could not have existed. They would have been wiped out forever uh, because they they only um, live in the human body. And so either all those uh, uh, diseases, and they mentioned several. Uh, sexual gonorrhea and diseases like that. So they said, so now did uh, did Noah and some of those eight people have gonorrhea and some of these different diseases in their bodies? And then that's how those diseases were kept alive? You know, because those are those are, are life. They're life. They're, they're, they're a disease, but they have, you know, like uh, bacterial. That's pretty interesting. Is that interesting or not, Bob? Yeah. Find that interesting? You know, those are questions that someone asks you, and you were saying, yes, I believe in the flood. And someone asks you and all these things, you and I would be left there like, with your mouth open looking down. God doesn't want us to be down, right? Okay. And they asked, how did the predators survive on the ark? Uh... How did the animals get to the present ranges? Um, how did polar bears get from Ararat to Australia? Polar bears, koala, koalas get from Ararat to Australia. Polar bears to the Arctic. Uh, what kind of environment they require to live 
uh, when the times have gone, they require to live definitely exist between the two points. How does so many unique species get to remote islands? Um, they're saying that everything was blotted out that did not, that uh, was not on the ark. Um, our ecological inter interdependencies preserved as animals migrated from Ararat. Um, did the, the, the Yucca moth migrate across the Atlantic? Um, were there a few thousand years ago unbroken giant sequoia forests between Ararat and California to allow in, indigenous bark and cone, cone beetles to migrate? Why are so many animals found in limited ranges? Um, how did the human population rebound so fast? And it talks about some things like that. Why do other myths vary so greatly from the Genesis account? How can a literal interpretation be appropriate uh, to the Bible if the text is self-contradictory? Genesis 6, 20 and Genesis 7, 14, 15 says there were two of each kind of fowl and clean beast. Yet Genesis 7, 2, 3, and 5 says they came in seven. Um, how can a literal interpretation be consistent with reality? How can Noah have gathered male and female of each kind when some species are asexual, um, others are pathogenic and have only females, and some are hermaphrodites? And what about social animals, animals like amphitermites, which need the whole nest to survive? Um, why stop with the flood story? If your style of biblical interpretation makes you take the flood literally, then why shouldn't you also believe in a flat stationary earth as mentioned in Daniel 4, 10, 11, Matthew 4, 8, 1 Chronicles 16, 30, and Psalms 93, 1? <laughs> Pretty nasty guys. <laughs> the maintenance of modern creationists and flood geology not only is useless uh, uh, with unbelieving, to unbelieving scientists, it is harmful. Although many who have no scientific training have been swayed by creationist arguments, the unbelieving scientists will reason that a, Christ, that a Christian that believes in such nonsense must be a religion not worthy of his interest. Modern creationists, in this sense, uh, uh, is ineffective. Uh, it could even be a hindrance to the gospel. Uh, that's pretty interesting. I find that interesting. I find that interesting. I put that over there. Those are two uh, rather um, not too uh, agreeable to give a lot of uh, encouragement about reading the Bible and believing it as it is written. And when anybody starts talking about what we do with the manifest, where we're trying to go with it. We really are the stupid people. When you start seeing some of the things that the creationists, which represent are represent in the societies of the churches of today, teaching, they are the ones that are really out of line. They are really, really, really out of line. And, and the things that we're saying, we're, we're, we are actually coming up with beautiful, wonderful revelation that really tells the truth of how it really works, and yet, it still coincides that truth to the Bible and, 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 and you know, gives 
a credit to the Bible being the beautiful and wonderful book it is. Now, um, other things that John's really having a problem with is, you know, the, the massacres and some of that kind of stuff that, that goes on in the Bible and the killing of children and, and, uh, and, and so forth. You know, uh, <clears throat> like there's this one instance um, that there was this uh, tribe of people, the Midianites, and Moses had even gone there and been helped. You know, he had been, he had been actually helped. And uh, they got, they parked fairly close to where those Midianites were, and some of the, the Israelite people sort of got uh, fancy-footed about about those women because I said some of them were, I guess, pretty good-looking. And uh, so they, you know, sort of took them into the camp and decided they'd make them wives. Well, when Moses found out about it, he was really angry, probably because he wasn't consulted first. Uh, you know, he probably had a swelled head. And uh, so he had him killed. He just plain out I'd have them killed. These guys killed for what they did. I think they killed the Midianite women too. Well, then a few months passed, and they had a conflag with the soldiers and the people. And they decided, well, if you really do want some of these Midianite wives, then we've got to do it the right way. Midianite women, four wives, we've got to do it the right way. So what you're going to do then, and we're going to go to war against these people, and we're going to kill every one of them except the virgin women. Children, babies, men, we're going to kill them all, but we'll keep all of the virgin women alive. And that's what they did. It's hard to read something like that and feel like, oh, how powerful the goodness of God is. Because these people, when they write it, these leaders, they all give God the credit for the revelation. But it never did come from God. Even though they said it did, it never did come from God. God never was telling them to do that. That was never from God. But then people, people don't understand that. They don't understand that these people were still, even with the miracles that they used, they were barbarians. They were barbarians. And they were not operating out of the perfect will of God. And it was not the most high God that was telling them, yeah, go ahead and do this. You know, yes, they were allowed to do it without God just wiping them out because most of the time God does not intervene. He does not intervene in things. And um, like, like uh, I don't, you know, I don't believe, and I've had problems with it, and I've said this before, I, I don't believe that, that God judged uh, these uh, other people um, that, uh, of the flood, some of them, the way that, that some people are thought that they were judged. Um, I think that the way God does, He doesn't go around cursing people. I don't. I don't believe that. I believe uh, that God does not curse people. I. Uh, I believe that um, uh, that doesn't mean there aren't incidents and incidents in which uh, special cases that cursing might have a place. But generally, the Most High God. Uh, uh, factually and actually, the Most High God does not does not do curse. Now, how does He work then? How He works is He blesses someone. So when Noah and and his family uh, were helped uh, with the ark for the lives to be saved, 
he blessed them with the knowledge about building an ark. The other people out there, they did not get blessed. And even though they heard what Moses was doing, they could not believe it. They could not believe it. And the way that that was done was these people didn't go a long time ahead of time to get inside the ark. Basically, the day it started raining is the day they went inside the ark. So people didn't just have an awful lot of time to say, whoa, look, it's raining. Oh, maybe this is great. Let's go get in the ark. Uh, there was, they got in there and they got in there fast and they shut the door. Well, they didn't shut it. God did. We'll get into that kind of stuff too and how that all happened. Oh, it's so interesting. There's going to be so many, many things that we want to get into that are so interesting. We're going to show you how, the, you know, how these things all come together. Uh, I've got some interesting books too that I want to I want to read. Plus, I've got um, you know who are the Mormons from Manifest. Uh, but there was a Scientific America uh, magazine that came out, and this is a special edition, and it was uh, September 26, 2005. It's called Our Ever Changing Earth, and you know it might not be a, a too dumb of an idea to try to get yourself a copy because this whole magazine, the entire whole magazine is about the earth and and the core and how it's built, what calls its mountains. Uh, in here, uh, they acknowledge that they have come to a new way of, um, of understanding tectonic plates and whether they thought, they thought that tectonic plates was the force that was creating mountains. They now know that that is not true, and they now know that these uh, mountains are being formed by gigantic plumes of magnum that comes up from below. And the reason is is tectonic plates are horizontal. So only when they come together and they don't do subduction, but they, they come together and they push on each other's edge, uh, do they uh, form a, a small amount of upheavals that could be hills or maybe even mountains? But they're very limited. Uh, that that is not the normal thing that happens. But what does make mountains that they have now understood and proven is something that is occurring in the deep part of the earth that is vertical, and that's what a plume is. When it comes up from the from the from the core. It is coming up vertically, whereas the tectonic plates are laying upon the face of the earth like a skin, or down in the earth, rather, like a skin, uh, and they're horizontal. And so it's the vertical action that ends up really making the mountains. And that's, that, I think, is very, very important. Erosion adds to their shapes and designs. But this is a very um, extremely interesting book. Um, it says here, the water in the Earth's manual uh, could equal the amount contained in several oceans. Uh, they're actually saying that uh, they have discovered, and this is a, a new discovery, that um, uh, water molecules can be stored in the actual structure of, of mantle materials. This means the Water, man, uh, water molecule does not get destroyed. And uh, interesting, 
uh, in this one article that I read to you where it was challenging all these things, that was one of the things that they challenged because they said this water could not have come up from beneath because uh, water uh, molecules uh, would be disassimilated uh, because there's no facility in the elements uh, to allow them to be retained as uh, water cells. Uh, now this latest discovery uh, repudiates that. It says, no, in fact, uh, it is discovered that water cells can be maintained uh, in, the, in the various minerals, and they're saying that they've discovered that there's so much of it that there's more water in that core that is in all of the oceans of the entire whole world. I think that's very interesting. Don't you find that interesting? Especially interesting when the Bible talks about the fountains of the deep were opened up. Is that interesting or not? Very interesting, you know, when, when you've talked about that. Okay. Uh, okay. Let's see. What else? goes on to say that when some of these um, lithospheric plates um, are moved because of of uh, some changes that occur in the core mantle, uh, that without question or doubt, the effect of it uh, is one of the things that causes uh, the Earth to tilt on its axis. You remember our our uh, teachings going back for lots and lots of years about how that the that the Earth uh, was tilted on its axis, and and uh, well. There's lots of substantiation now for that. has been proven, and I've got it in several books, and they even give the ratios and the whole story that that is actually the case right now, that the Earth actually is in a tilted position, and something had to have happened to cause the Earth to tilt on its axis, and that actually has happened, and they have now proven it, that, that it has tilted. And it's very, 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 very uh, interesting. Um, because it's 27 degrees off uh, from its uh, equatorial uh, uh, expected position. And uh, that 27 degrees is precisely uh, what gives it that extra delta. I think those kinds of things uh, are very, very interesting. Um, now, here's something else. Remember this fellow was, was talking about how that there is so much heat exchanged in the the fluid hydraulics of of, uh, of exchanges that could take place, which is very similar to convection, and would increase the pressure and also increase the heat. And remember, I, I said it could cause uh, waters to boil, and the pressure would be so great that it would create toxic oxygen, nitrogen. You remember that when I read that? Well, now this guy, this EP was saying. Uh, the mantle below the Azores hot spot differs from the normal sub-mid-Atlantic uh, uh, ridge mantle, uh, not so much by being hotter as have been incorporated at some stage uh, water and other fluids uh, that changed its chemical composition and melting behavior. Uh, what they're saying here, and I have time to read the whole article, is that in the process of time that some of these elements have changed so that their heat transference is much, much less. Therefore, would make some kind of a action that would take place that would transfer this water and the pressure 
to be far, far, far more reasonable, therefore not necessarily detrimental by pressure or heat uh, uh, for its destructiveness. I think that's very interesting. I find that just, uh, you know, it, it just grabs, that kind of stuff is very interesting to me. Um, all right, let me just do some more looking here. I just want you people to be addressed on this. Um, okay, they're, they're, once again, they're talking about these hot spots and these things that can happen when, when uh, convection of a sense is taking place and transferring the heat and the pressure. And uh, they applied two uh, geothermometers uh, to test an area in the Mid-Atlantic uh, Ridge. And it says the results were surprising. They did not show higher temperatures in the high spot region. If anything, the region gives temperatures that are slightly hotter. And they're saying that in these places where, you know, it should be hotter and that that should affect a general area and increase the temperature, they found that it actually uh, did not. The opposite thing was happening. It was getting cooler. So this now scientifically makes it plausible that... Um, when these extreme uh, pressures were created and, and these water exchanges were transferred, that you did not necessarily also have transfer of, of, uh, of greater heat, uh, that it could actually have been cooler uh, because of the design of something that still is not totally known or understood in this whole consequences of action. I find those things just enormously interesting to me. Mantle activity may, be, may also cause islands to emerge in the middle of oceans and deep trenches to form at their edges. Now listen to this. In fact, these processes of mantle activity may be so potent that they may even suddenly affect the rotation of the planet. Now we're showing that something can actually happen on Earth that can either speed up or slow down the rotational speed of the planet Earth. And this is something that we've said for years and years and years. Most of you should remember that. And I remember that was one of the things that John really had a problem with. He said, there's no way that something that happens on Earth is going to increase the rotation. I said, yes, there is, John. And someday I will get and I will show you scientifically where it's written, and I haven't had a chance to do that yet. But, uh, but it's very, very important to know these, these kind of things. And I find those, those just really, really interesting. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff here. I can't read it all. Uh, here, here's this part here. Based on the position of North American coastlines during the Cretaceous uh, uh, Age, uh, Butemont estimated that this abowing downward and subsequent uplift to today's elevation must have an effect in an area of about 1,000 kilometers across. This geographic scale was problematic uh, for the prevailing view that plate tectonics alone molded the surface. This is when they found out that that was no longer true. The mechanism of plate tectonics permits vertical motions only within 200 uh, uh, kilometers or so along the plate edges. 
which are thin enough to bend like a stiff fishing pole, which, for, which forces uh, acts on them. But the motion of the North American interior happens several hundred, several hundred kilometers inland, far from the influence of plate collision. An entirely different mechanism had to be operating. And that's when they've discovered this thing about the plumes of the magnum. And they found out that that actually is what makes the mountains. And they've now discovered that all the people, think of the people that have gone to geology school and learned all this business about uh, tectonic plates. And come back and said, oh, yes, I've got all this knowledge. And now they're finding out that a lot of what they thought was correct is wrong. It's wrong. Amen? And now here you are, people in here, just cuddled in this little spot, and you're getting a chance to be informed up to date. Blessed be the name. We're going to the school of the prophet. Hallelujah to Jesus. Why land rises? A superplume, a blob of hot, buoyant rock originating from the outer surface of the core, expands upward through the mantle because it is less dense than the surrounding material. It pushes the continent up as it goes. And that is a very, very interesting thing because uh, scientifically you have to uh, be able to uh, uh, value and equivocate the difference of volume and density. They are two different things. Uh, volume is displacement, uh, but density is like the weight of something. How much... Uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, material is actually in that. Uh, like you could have a, a, a piece of iron that was only that much, and you could have something else that was aluminum, and it was huge many, many times, and it would have more volume, but it would have less density. So that the iron would actually outweigh this much bit larger piece of aluminum because it's density is so much closer together and tighter and compressed. Does everyone follow that? Yeah. That's important. And what they're saying is because that um, uh, this material that comes up has less density, that allows it to move upward when it's pressurized, and as it does move upward, it pushes the continent up with it, and that's what forms mountain ranges. And I know that I can feel this when I read it. I've read all kinds of other geological uh, reasons for how mountains were formed, but I never had a witness. But when I read this, I knew that was right. I knew that that was right. And, uh, like, and a lot of people don't realize that, you know, there's, uh, there's three different kinds. Uh, there's, uh, 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 the Earth has three different kinds of equilibrium uh, fluids. Um, Air is considered one, and that's called the atmosphere. And that's, that, that, that is one of your, your kinds of fluid. It's a, it's a, a fluid, it's a, it's a gas, and it's still considered a fluid. And the hydrosphere is, are the oceans. And the lithosphere is the fluid, the lava, uh, the, the magnum. Uh, and um, uh, now, this is interesting. I made a note here. The lithosphere... The, uh, in the core that has the maximum, uh, the, the lava, exceeds the ocean volume a thousand, the ratio, a thousand to one. For every one part of water, there's a thousand parts of the lava 
in, in the in the core of the earth. Um, as far as the mass density factor, for every mass density factor of um, of water, the ratio is five thousand to one. That is huge. You take those those two combined volume and mass ratios of density, you just begin to realize, uh, you know, that this little thin shell at the top, the onion skin that we live on, where the water and the land abides, is extremely fragile and very thin. And and that the huge, massive part uh, that is the earth is this, this core, and there's different levels to the core, and the ratio of its density is 5,000 to 1. And, and its volume is 1,000 to 1. And that just overrides uh, anything that we have up here that we feel is massive, like the ocean or the air or any of that. That's just nothing compared to the volume and the density that there is in the core of this earth. I, I just, you know, now maybe there'd be some of you that, that that would just be boring to but you know, you need to know this if you're going to understand the Bible. That's right. You, you actually do, and you'll see as we go on. You know. Okay. So there's anything all that left in this book that we want to get into. There's a lot in here, but I think I think we've covered enough out of that book. Put that over there. We're doing good. Yeah. Now let's get over here to uh, this book. This book is by um, Charles Berlitz, and uh, he is uh, a fellow who um, read a little something about him. Born in New York City, graduate of the Yale University. Uh, grandson of Maximilian Berlitz, founder of the Berlitz Language Schools. Uh, he's listed in the People's Almanac as one of the 15 most eminent linguists in the world. Uh, he was awarded the Dag uh, Hammarskjöld International Prize for Nonfiction. Uh, he's written all kinds of famous books. Uh, he resides in Florida, where he keeps a 58-foot sailboat in case of another flood. <laughs> That's what it says here. Oh, my goodness. Now, um, this guy has some very interesting things that he, that he says. They're extremely interesting. Uh, a lot of people would just not have the knowledge of, of some of the things that he's got in this book. But this is called The Lost Ship of Noah. The Lost Ship of Noah, if you want to get yourself a book, In Search of the Ark at Ararat. Now, um, uh, he goes on to tell that they have just found all kinds of huge ships, ships as big as the Noah ship, on high mountains uh, ranges, way up in the mountains, like, you know, seven, eight, almost 10,000 feet above sea level. There's not just one ship. There's just all kinds that they have found. And he was telling about this one that was built out of reeds and then coated with concrete. And it was a total concrete ship. And he said, now some people would think that concrete could not float. But he said, it absolutely can and does. And he said, during the 
World War II, he said there were concrete ships that were made out of con there were ships made out of concrete uh, for certain purposes. And uh, and I found that very interesting. I found it extremely interesting that even on Mount Ararat in that area, they have found uh, all kinds of ships, but they just haven't believed that because they were they were at lower levels. They just did not believe that it was, it was the, the ark. They believe the actual ark was up there in that 17,000 uh, feet high location. Um, but he goes on to say, you know, he tells about that whole thing about getting up there on the ark. He says, getting on the Mount Ararat. He says, getting on Mount Ararat, he says, is not a simple thing. He says, first off, he says, down at the base of the mountain, all around that mountain, he says, is full of snakes and of scorpions. And he says, uh, a lot of people have been bitten and really, uh, you know, come close to death from their bites. Just from, you know, trying to get on up to the hill, uh, you know. Then he said, for a long time, there was armed bandits that were just waiting for any tourists to come up there and try to climb the mountain. And he said, you have that to confront. And then he says, you get a little bit further up, and he said, you would run into uh, woods. And he said they had, a, they had their dens, and he said there was lots of them. They were just up at uh, this certain area. There's just a tremendous number of woods. And then he said, when you finally made it through the woods, he said, and he said, this is still true today. He said, you get up to the next level, he says, there's bears. And he says they, they've got their dens there, and he was talking about how that he accidentally walked in this one cave, and there was a mother bear and two cubs, and he turned around and ran for his life. And, and he says, you know, and then you get past that, he says, then there's something about the way the mountain is and the isotopes and all the way the mountain is, he says it conducts, it conducts light electricity. So he says, when, when, when the weather gets bad, he says the lightning comes down. He says several people have been killed by lightning that have gone up there to, you know. And then he says uh, there is a, a, a weird kind of fog that, that, that comes up there, and it disorientates people. So he said these two ladies that were top uh, geologists and mountain climbers, they got disoriented up there from the U.S., and they walked right into a crevice, and both were killed. Fell down the crevice and died. What you said is just, you know, but they just orientated because of this unusual fog. And, um, and uh, he says, you know, it uh, somehow is not just simply meant for people to just easily get up there and find whether there's a, a, a arc up there or not because he says, uh, then once you do get up to the very top, he says it's all glaciated. And he says it's just solid ice. Just, he said, really, really deep. So he said it's buried everything up there. So uh, he basically was saying, hey, you want to go find the ark? Best of luck. <laughs> go ahead. It's not an easy thing. Okay, now that was one of his stories. Then he's telling these other stories. It's a pretty interesting fellow. There was one of them, he says, you know, uh, he feels that, that the, time, the time range is not right that people have about the ark. I don't know how many of you people remember the teaching in the manifest that says that there's a, at least a 10,000 or more gap between when 
Abraham uh, started, uh, you know, his uh, description in the Bible, and Noah and the flood. How many people remember the manifest and that? Okay, some of you do remember it. Yeah, and that we've taught that for years, and it's very interesting because uh, roughly thirteen thousand years before the uh, what has been considered the time of the deluge, the flood, uh, there was an ice age, and then the ice, you know, it melted, and of course that created a lot of water. But that's very, very important. The the relativeness of the Ice Age and then going into this other time, they're very, very close together in that 13,000 to 10,000 year period. Uh, it just it makes a lot of sense. And we will, if we get a chance, uh, we'll talk about that. Um, let's see. The sinkhole in Florida, Everglades, a huge carved tusk protruding out of the mud was found to be connected to a skeleton of a giant mastodon, dead at least 11,000 years. Around it were crowded camels, horses, tigers, sleuths, sloths, 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 with an incalculable number of other species under the muck. Is that interesting? I find that interesting. Uh, they're also finding all kinds of species which uh, apparently... Uh, you know, disappeared, that, that they were not on the ark, obviously. They, they, during that time, uh, they just disappeared. They've got their bodies and their bones, but they, they ceased to, uh, to be anymore. Uh, in the hills of Montreal and New Hampshire and in Michigan, five and six hundred feet above sea level, bones of whales have been found. In many places on Earth, on all continents, Bones of sea animals and polar land animals, tropical animals, have been found in Great Malie. Um, hippopotamus, ostriches, found together with seals and reindeer, from the Arctic to the Antarctic, in high mountains. <coughs> we find innumerable signs of a great upheaval. Is that interesting? Okay. Now, there's one here that I find, I find so interesting, though. I got, I, I've got to find that read here. I think miners digging in Switzerland in a shaft 100 feet below the surface, 100 feet below the surface, in a coal shaft, found a large iron anchor, and then the remains of a wooden ship, well-fashioned, decorated with carvings, and still holding numerous human skulls within its broken timbers. Um, in 1540, only a few years before the conquest of Peru, Spanish gold hunters, searching for hidden treasures of gold and silver and mines, uh, which they thought the Peruvian Indians were still keeping secret, encountered a wooden wall in a passage they were digging under a hill in Calio. Further digging revealed the remains of a large wooden ship, quite unlike the seagoing ships which the Incas used in their ocean trips off the western coast of South America. Another mysterious ancient ship was found during the Alaska Gold Rush and described in some details in the San Francisco Examiner, June 1908, which reports the find of a hole of a great, of a, the hole, H-U-L-L, -L, of a great ship 
high up on the hills within the Arctic Circle and far to the interior from the sea. Very far to the interior, away from the sea. Uh, it had been washed up many miles inland. Uh, further examinations emphasized the shape of a ship 300 feet long with entries, apertures, and passageways. The frozen wood appeared to be of a great age and was characterized by unusual decorations and inscriptions. Chips had been found buried under hills. Uh, under hills probably got there when their privates were uh, freed from the catastrophic flood, which produced such tremendous waves that the vessels were not only washed, washed up on land, but through the action of successive waves and the force of floodwaters, they were literally buried under the mud, which later hardened over them. One particular thing I hope I can find here. It is so interesting. Canary Islands. How many people know roughly where the Canary Islands are? Okay. The Canary Islands were the first central Atlantic islands to be discovered, and the indigenous inhabitants believed that they were the sole survivors on Earth from a flood that had happened thousands of years before. The inhabitants of the Canary Islands were white-skinned, tall and muscular stature, and many were blonde-haired and blue-eyed. They were officially discovered in 1395 by Jean uh, uh, Bittencourt, a French nobleman in, the, nobleman in the service of Spain. When the Spanish landed, they could not communicate with the natives who spoke no language known to the Spaniards. When the islanders had learned enough Spanish to communicate, they told the surprised Spanish visitors that they could under, not understand where the men and ships had come from, as they believed that the Great Flood had drowned everyone in the world except themselves. <laughs> Once they said their ancestors had lived in a large uh, land with great cities, fertile plains and rivers, but a flood covered it, and only a few people had been able to flee to the high mountains and survive. The islands where they they now were living, uh, uh, once were the mountaintops of their vanished homeland. The waters of the flood, unlike those of the biblical flood, never receded. Uh, and they pointed to the waters as being the surrounding Atlantic Ocean, still there. I find that extremely interesting. Huh? Yeah, I'd say that's pretty unusual. And there's a whole lot more. That, you know, the, the, the we're going to get into all of this, you know, and like there's 270 different uh, places that there are uh, myths, if you want to call them that, or legends about the flood all around the world. 270. In almost every major nation in the world, there is a, a, a story. And they, they of course... They're not all named Noah. They all have a different name for their leader, and the ships are, are all built differently. But, but it's all around the whole world. Now, how could that happen? How could that be? Is that interesting? Gosh. Scary. Time's going too fast. Um, I got some really interesting things. I don't know. Do people need to take a break and stand up and go to the bathroom? <coughs> How many people need to take a break and go to the bathroom? Yeah. Well, let's just give people, you know, stand up and set your bodies. <laughs>
Please don't be too long getting back. Hey, did, uh, did he talk about carpet dating? Did they carpet date any of those ships they have? Uh, they mentioned some of that, yeah. A lot of them, a lot of them go way back. Okay, yeah, sorry. I went about Canary Island. I thought that was a good one. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, they sound like they're the remnant of the Atlanteans. Yeah. I just think they stop there and they don't see
Uh, that department isn't that empty yet. So as long as you need to go, just keep going. Yeah. Well, it's an open question. Yeah, I do. I can run I think I'm going to go ahead and get started, and because I have a lot of time now and uh, get into some really important aspects of the teaching here. What I want to do is um, I want to go into the Bible and over uh, some of the blood stuff in the Bible. A lot of the, the problem uh, is where... Uh, Scripture is just clear, not clear, and people just don't understand it. Uh, <clears throat> I think one of the important things is that when the Scripture uses the term earth, that people are constantly thinking in terms of the planet. But it, not every time when it uses the word earth does it mean the planet. So that is a very, very important thing. And so, for instance, if we... Um, if we look at Genesis 1, um, verses 1 and 2, where it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Uh, we've made the point before that um, the void and, and without form and void, that could not be the planet. That could not be the planet Earth, because this is actually before the planet Earth is is the planet Earth. It's still in the process of being formed. So I think that that's very, very important, that there are times in the scriptures that it might say Earth or Heaven, but it doesn't, Heaven doesn't necessarily, in every case, mean uh, the firmament, nor does in every case it mean uh, the Heaven of Heavens. Uh, sometimes heaven can mean space. Other times heaven can mean uh, that which belongs to uh, another another planet, another world. So, so we, we have to be very uh, very careful there that we don't try to put something on it. Now, there is a definition that's very interesting in Genesis one verse ten. Genesis one verse ten, and God called the dry land, earth. Now this is very important. That scripture is very important. The fact that the dry land was called earth. That doesn't mean that the dry land was called a planet. It means that the dry land was called earth meaning dry land. So there are times when the Bible says that, for instance, the flood covered the whole earth uh, it may not be talking about anything more than it covered the whole land, which was the land where the flood was. And we're going to get into all that. But we have to be very, very careful when the word says all, all of this, and all of this, uh, those people, or all of this thing. Because it may also mean all of the persons or the animals that were in that world which was contained within that land. 
that land had a geology to it and a location. It was not necessarily everywhere on the globe. That's very important. Because here we see, by the Bible's own definition, there's a case in which, number one, that it's called the earth and it doesn't even have a form. It's not on the planet. It's not about the solidification of matter. That's another description. And then it's talking that the, that the land, the dry land, was called earth, okay? Um, look at Genesis 1, verse 28. Uh, and God blessed them and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now, physically, if we were talking the whole planet Earth, and this is the word that he spoke to, to say, Adam and Eve, okay? <laughs> without an airplane, without even with an airplane, there is no way that you'd be able to get all over the world to subdue and be over all the animals everywhere in the entire whole uh, planet Earth. Does everybody understand that? So obviously... That is not what the meaning of earth is there. The meaning of earth is there, the land, the land that they live in, where those animals, those fish, those creatures are in that land where they live. Okay? Very important. Okay. Now, let's go on, um, and let's, let's look at some things. Uh, I want to give you a very interesting scripture uh, turn to Joshua 24.2. And Joshua said, this is 24.2, and Joshua said to all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Now, I want you to really pay attention to that because it's a little different than the point I'm getting ready to make. But Joshua said, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. I think we have to understand that a lot of times when we are being told that God destroyed this or that God did that, it's not any different than Joshua said, thus saith the Lord. <laughs> and it's actually Joshua that is saying it. But he's doing it in the name of the Lord as though it were God because he believes that he's justified in his faith and belief to do that. But that doesn't mean that he is, or that he is correct. But he said, you know, here's, Joshua is saying, thus saith the Lord, but it's Joshua saying it. Some of them say, oh yeah, well he's prophesying. <laughs> yes? <laughs> Let me tell you about some of those prophecies that you get out there. Ezekiel's prophecy. Was that Ezekiel or was that God? That was Ezekiel. Yes, God told him to prophesy. But it was still Ezekiel that did the prophesying, and he's the one that said it. And if he wouldn't have been obedient and wouldn't have had a certain amount of faith, I don't think anything would have happened. It was still Ezekiel that said it. And if he did something wrong, it would be Ezekiel's fault. He didn't do it quite the way God wanted it to be done. That's how it works. Okay, let's go on. Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old times. Even Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout 
all the land of Canaan. Now, in the manifest, it tells us that the Garden of Eden was actually considered all the way over into the, to the Nile and even up into parts of Africa and uh, went all of the way down toward, you know, toward Turkey, went all the way toward the <coughs> Euphrates River. And so there are scriptures, I don't have the time to look it up for you today, but actually everything on this side of the Euphrates River was considered this side of the flood. And everything on the other side of the Euphrates River was the other side of the flood. Now, the other side of the, of the Euphrates was uh, Babylon, uh, Ur, uh, Nineveh, uh, all those Sumer, all those great ancient cities on the Persian Gulf that went out into the, the sea. Those were all part of that. That is, that is extremely important, extremely interesting in the doctrine of the manifest, as you will see when I get this, on the other side of the flood, because of the difference of the things that happened on the two different sides of the flood. Now, on the other side of the flood, where um, Abraham used to live and he came out of, is not where Mount Hermon is. Mount Hermon is on this side of the flood. <coughs> and it's very interesting that we find in the scripture that there, is, there are um, uh, some very uh, definite areas close to where Sodom and Gomorrah uh, were located, which was not too far from the Dead Sea, and that these are relatively close to Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon uh, had two things. The wood that was called gopher wood, which actually is cedar, was how the, what the ark was built out of. And the other thing was that it was covered with pitch. In order to cover something with pitch, especially anything that huge, you really have got to have a lot of it available, an awful lot available. And it's got to be not very far away, especially in those days when they didn't have just a lot of tra extra transportation. And especially if you are going to take it up a mountain called Mount Hermon, then it sure had better not be too far. That's, that is very, very interesting. Just keeping that in mind as we're getting into the correlation of this flood thing. Okay. Now, do we teach and do we believe that there were dinosaurs alive in the days of Noah? The art teachings absolutely does not repeat that. They repudiate that. So, when we find these animals buried together, and we find these other animals and so far, uh, we realized that there were other catastrophic events that had to happen on Earth. And basically what the manifest teaches, but it's been a long time since I've been able to share these things with you, is that it actually teaches that the flood was the eighth cataclysmic event, that there had been seven other cataclysmic events on Earth huge cataclysmic events on Earth prior to the flood. Now, I don't have a lot of time to go into it, but I'll give you a very cute scripture for it. Uh, and if you just turn with me to Second Peter. I wanted to go through these scriptures because there was other books I could go through, but I want to make sure you didn't miss out on these scriptures because they're so really, really neat. 
Hug it for a minute. Oh, right. The third chapter of Second Peter, um, first four. It says it's going to be people that are going to challenge and have a problem believing the Bible, and saying, "Where is the promise of His coming?" For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of uh, since the beginning of creation. For this, they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God, the heavens were of old. Now, this to me is an extremely incredible statement here. And it's saying that people were not, they were, they were ignorant and they were willing to remain ignorant as, as far as what regards the real age. The real age of the atmosphere, the real age of the heavens, the earth. They just, they were ignorant of it. And because they're ignorant of it, they really could not come to the truth. Because you have to have a certain understanding of the age of the earth, the age of the heavens, and what this whole uh, hydraulic nature of the earth has been in order to really have a, a proper picture of it. Um, they were ignorant, willingly ignorant. Uh, now, by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. That's also part of that which was old. So what it is saying is not that, yes, the water covered some of the earth, but then it didn't cover all of the earth, because that would be contradictory to the time that, the, that seems to sound like the flood covered the whole world and all the high mountains. They'll say, well, I think he's referring to after the water start receding. Well, then how would a person, anybody reading this, ever know what that's talking about? Unless there's something much more deeper here. And, that, what, and what is it that people are willingly ignorant of? <clears throat> well, they're willingly ignorant of the fact of the age of the heavens and the earth. And the fact that there has been, yes, there was the flood, but there was other situations uh, that were ancient that had to do with the condition of the earth that didn't have anything to do with the flood. So there's references that apply to this which people allow themselves to be willingly ignorant of, that apply both to, to what is um, uh, the flood and, and what is prior to the flood. Mm -hmm. That is very important. You know? Mm -hmm. And uh, whereby the world that, that then was, mm -hmm. being overflowed with water, perished. You notice that the last one it mentions it's the first one is the earth standing out of the water, then it mentions in the water, and that last one is the one that being covered with the flood then perishes. But then it says, but you know, this thing is going on. That wasn't the end of it, was it? It said there's going to be another one. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, and they're reserved and fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. It's going to be another cataclysm. This is going to happen. It just keeps going on. Like when Jesus said, you'll always have the poor. And like there'll always be wars and rumors of wars. This thing is inherent, and it's just going to keep going on. Now, that's not the end of what I want you to read. That's not even what I'm, the main thing I'm trying to get to. 
Uh, let me see if I can find it here. Um, yeah, here it is. Chapter 2, verse 4. And I want you to pay particular notice to the, this reading because I'm going to connect it with some reading in Genesis. It's very important. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved in the judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person. Now, let's look at that eighth person. <laughs> it's totally unreasonable to call Noah the eighth person. Because Noah was the one that was the first person to whom the revelation of the flood was given. And then he married a wife. And then they had sons, which made his wife the second person. And the three sons, you know, third, fourth, and fifth, they married. You see, see what I'm saying? Five, six, seven, eight. So he wasn't the eighth person. So what does it mean when it says the eighth person? So it says, well, it's just talking that there was eight people. No, it isn't just talking there was eight people. Because what it really means here is that he belongs to the eighth cataclysmic event. That, that, that was the eighth cataclysmic event of the earth. Now, someone says, are you sure that's all there's been? Well, we're talking about with creatures on it. With creatures on it. We're not talking about when there was nothing on it, it was just being formed and all the actions that were going on then. But we're saying that there's, that there's been a lot of terrible things happened to the earth uh, in its forming. And, uh, and you can see it. You can go back in the, in the records of the rocks and see all these different animals that used to live there, and there's bones and remains of them, and, <laughs> you know, and they didn't all die at the same time. And a lot of your geologists will say, well, it happened over millions of years, and they were different events. To some extent, they're almost correct. They were different events. Their timetables are not totally correct, but, I mean, they, in some ways, they're on the right trail. This just all didn't happen at the flood, I guarantee you that. So that is very, very important. But take notice that it says about the angels that sinned, that this is all tied in, he's tied that in to the flood, and so forth. Okay, now let's go back to Genesis. And let's look at some other things. All right, Ike. Um, <laughs> now, in the, in the sixth chapter of Genesis, in the 18th verse, God is talking to Noah, but with thee, but with thee, will I establish my covenant. And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife, and thy sons' wives with thee. Now look at verse, chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come, thou and all thy house into the ark. For thee I have seen righteous before me in this generation. Now, I want to emphasize the word come. In the Revised Version, it was changed to go into the ark. But the literal Hebrew word is translated hundreds of times, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times into come. It's more often, more frequently translated into come, not into go. And what is the difference? Why does it matter? A really difference. If you are inside the house and someone is outside the door, you say, come on in. 
You don't say, go on in. If you're outside in the yard and they're standing praying by the door, you say, go on into the house. That means you are not in the house. But if you say, come into the house, that means you are already in the ark and you're inviting them to come into it. And it's already prophesied that what this house is going to be. You are not going to be building this ark alone. You are going to be having uh, help. Now later I want to talk about who this, these helpers were. <laughs> so it says, well, it was God. Actually, everything is God. That's right. Yeah. And they even tried to blame God for all the nasty things that happened on earth. But uh, it's just not that way. Now that's very, 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 very important. That little teeny tiny word, come. Come into the ark. That means these guys were not expected to get the animals in there by themselves, feed them by themselves. They had helpers. Big time. Okay. Now, just keeping that in mind, start putting some of these things together. Uh, let's look at, at, at chapter 7, verse 16. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. Now we've got a situation where the, the building is finished, but there is someone who's not part of the eight. Someone says, the Lord. Well, this is a physical action that's happening. Physical action. The Lord, which we know that Elohim and some of these various meanings, uh, in this particular case here is, is, is Yahweh or Yahweh, as we like to use it, because it has all the caps. But anyway, even when you take that word, Yahweh, you have the word Elohim part of it. And um, very interesting. Now, we're seeing that there was some physical, literal action that was happening at the ark other than what was just being volunteered by Noah and his family, both inside the ark and outside the ark. Someone say amen. amen. Is that interesting? Amen. Now let's go on to some other interesting things. Verse 7 of chapter 7. And Noah went in, his sons and his wife, and his sons' wife with him, into the ark because of the waters of the flood. They went in on the day that it started raining. And they didn't go in until it was already getting ready to happen. That's when they went into the, into the ark. Just keep that in mind. And in verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. And the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now keep this in mind because I'm going to show you something extremely interesting. Now go down to verse 17. And the flood was 40 days upon the earth, and the waters increased. And bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went up upon the face of the waters. 
and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. Now that is very, very interesting what it's saying here, because every one of these is a difference of the volume of water. First, there's the rain. Then the waters are prevailing and increased greatly upon the earth. And then in verse 19, the waters prevailed exceedingly. So you've got waters prevailing, waters getting great, waters getting exceeding. Those are all different levels that the water is increasing. But this isn't just at this point like just a tidal wave yet. This is waters that are coming up from the fountains of the deep and they're filling this, this area. This is extremely, extremely important. Very, very important. And it covers the hills, but does not yet cover the mountains. It has to rise another 15 cubits before it says that the mountains are covered. Now, the Bible is never written chronologically. So they, when you read it, most of the time, they don't necessarily have the order of what happens first followed by the order of what happens second. Many times they have the order of what happens second or third mentioned before the first, and that's just the way the Bible is written. You know? But what we really have here uh, is that there's 15 cubits. 15 cubits is a really interesting number because the ark was 30 cubits high. And for mathematics of displacement, um, you, would have to, you would have to have at least enough water to cover 50% of the height to, to uh, cause displacement on a, on a ship like that. And so 15 cubits is just extremely interesting. And I preached this a long time ago that the ark was built on top of the, of the mountain, and it, of, of Hermon. And there, I don't have the time to give you the scriptures, as I've done in the past, because we don't have the time for tonight. But the, the, uh, the, the waters were coming up from the deep. Where are they coming up from? Uh, in the Mediterranean. They were coming up in the Mediterranean Sea. And they were rising and rising and rising and rising and rising. Finally covering the, the Galilee, you know, and and then, uh, or if Galilee was there, anyway, covering the area where Galilee was, and or is today, and rising and rising, um, working its way down on, you know, mingling with the Jordan River, going down toward the, the Damascus, Syria, Syria uh, locations, and rising up the mountain, rising and rising and rising. Finally, it covers the hills, finally gets us up to the mountains. But the ark doesn't really rise until it's, because it's on a mountain, until it, it, it is 15 cubits. And when it reaches 15 cubits, that's when the ark rises. And that's very, very, very important. Now, they recently, and I have a book here, <coughs> and I have time to go into it, Noah's Ark, or Flood, and uh, written by William Ryan and William Pittman. 
And uh, they made an absolutely fantastic discover, discovery. <coughs> they found out that an area between the Mediterranean Sea and the Black Sea uh, ended up breaking through, and waters from the Mediterranean flooded into the Black Sea that used to be only fresh water. And seawater from the Mediterranean began to come in, and it just flooded, and it's the flood that came into the Mediterranean that it ended up flooding, which was the other side of the flood. Because that water comes through, it's what went and got all the Persian Straits and the Crescent Valley there and all of those areas, that's what happened there. And that was the difference of how this was ordered by God because the water on the other side of the flood just kept rising gradually. In fact, there was a point in which the water was being drained out, out of, the, of the Mediterranean. And it wasn't until uh, water started coming in fr from the Atlantic that, that started giving it that buoyancy and it started everything rising up again, but it did it gradual. It was not like the tidal wave that happened on the other side of the flood. That's very, 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 very important. Now, once it did get up, however, and did rise up, because things are beginning to happen really fast, and we're going to tell you why it happened fast and how, and show you the scriptures, and when you see it, I think your minds will just play uh, cute little tunes because you'll realize, hey, this makes sense, you know. But God is so smart how he told, you know, Noah, don't, don't uh, build that ark on the level ground, you know. Build it up high so when these, these rising waters come, it's going to be a great fortress, you know. Uh, then it won't crush you. You'll have, you'll have a chance for the great body of that to be quite up high uh, before, before you have to worry about it. It'll, it'll, it'll be able to even handle, uh, you know, a certain amount of tidal wave. Okay, now, what was it that caused the fountains of the deep to break up? Well, some people want to say, well, God did it, and because God was angry at the people. You know, I don't believe any of that for one second, because that is not how it really happened. Um, but we're going we're gonna to try to show you here... Um, how this how this happened. Be real short tape. Turn with me to the eighth chapter of Genesis. Or the seventh chapter, look at the twenty fourth verse. And the waters prevailed upon the earth a hundred and fifty days. Do you know that that's like five months? You know what it means by by prevailed? It meant that for, uh, for five months, the waters continued to rise. For five months. Imagine that. Waters rising for five months. That's what it means prevailed. And that's what you're actually, some of your geologists, I uh, wouldn't agree with the, that the meaning of that is. Um, the waters reached their highest point after 150 days which period included the 40 days of the, of the no raining. You know. Now, verse, chapter 8, verse 1. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And he made a wind to pass over the earth and the water as thought, or as means uh, subsided. 
and the fountains of the deep, and the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. Now what we teach in the manifest that this was, was a comet. And if you're able to read this very carefully, you will see clearly what it is really saying, because it's really interesting. When we look at the rain stopping, that's one thing. But when the fountains of the deep, which are interior and hydraulic action, stops at the same time, then the cause is something quite different from what's causing the rain to stop that is causing the hydraulic action of the fountains to stop at the same time. What is it that is causing that? Well, this wind, they're calling wind here, was a comet. And when the comet was quite a ways out in space but getting closer to the earth, this wind, and we know that, that solid things can be caused wind because it talks about God riding on the, the wings of the wind so that, that it can be, have different kind of meanings uh, than just something that is you blow that as it was getting closer to the earth, it's still a long ways off, and so months and months away from passing to its closest point that it's going to pass, that it already started affecting the gravity of the earth. Now, how many people understand that the moon affects the tides of the oceans? And that happens twice in 24-hour period because of the gravity of the moon effect on the earth. Now, when you take a great comet and it's starting to get closer, the gravity is already affecting it, and the fountains of the deep are already tearing apart and opening up. And they're already starting, starting to come up, and as they're coming up, you know, this water is spewing up, and it's increasing the vapor load in the air, and, and now, now uh, you're, you're getting all kinds of things to happen. You're also... Because of the the closer that this this um, uh, comet is getting, its gravity is is so great that it's actually uh, starting to affect the the state of the atmosphere. <coughs> now, someone says, "Yeah, but it wouldn't be coming close for five months." <laughs> Absolutely, it would. That's how it is out in space. Things are traveling in space; they might be years, like these. Comets that, that, that there's comets that only come around every 180 years. Same comet. And 180 years they come back, but they're way, way out from the Earth. So they, they, they don't affect. But, it, but this one is a close one, the close one. And, and, and so as it got um, to the, as it, as it kept approaching for 150 days, there was a continuation of of this changing and up, lifting of, of, the, of the water oceans, of the oceans up from the Mediterranean and, and affecting other places in the world too, but not every place in the world, not every place on the whole planet Earth, but different places around the Earth were affected. And then as it finally gets, reaches the point where it does what it says here, and God, God made a wind to pass over the Earth, when it passed over the earth, it went beyond the earth, then what happened? Not only did the rain stop, but the fountains of the deep that had been affected by the gravity, they stopped also. Once it had gone past the earth, got out of the range of the earth, 
where it was not affecting the gravity anymore. It stopped. Can anybody see that? Yeah. Very important. Yeah. It's very clearly there. And that is what happened. That is a beautiful, beautiful story of what happened. That's only a, a, a portion of what we really want to say here. But um, there, there, there is just, there is just so much. It's, 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 it's so awesome. Uh, these, you know, what, what else was happening? Uh, well, it didn't affect every mountain. It didn't affect the coil reef uh, because it was, when it said the earth, it was talking about the land. Now, when we start saying all of the people, all of the flesh, let's get into that. Here's what we do. What is the population of the Earth right now? Say five billion? Six billion? Okay. So we take today's state and we take six billion. Now we take, statistically speaking, there is an average of how many times population doubles. So statistically, they say that when you take in all the uh, catastrophic events and so forth, that it, it doubles every 139 years. I think that's a little high, but let's just say that that's the case. So what you would then do is you would take the population, 6 billion, and you go back 139 years, and you cut it in half. Now it's down to, to 3 billion. Then you go another 139 years, and you cut that in half, and you're down to 1.5 billion. And you keep going back in time until you're down to just not very many people. And that will then give you chronologically the date when the, when the land only had those few people on it. And that will prove, because of the replacement theorem of it, that when, when you take that from now to back to the days of the flood, you'll find that there was very, very few people. That, that it, it might have been a multitude, they called it, but it was nothing like what we're talking about on the earth today. Nothing, no comparison. It was just not that many people. So the, the, so the people now, when you go back geology-wise into history, what do you find? In, in, the, um, uh, in the area that we're talking about um, that includes the Persian Gulf and includes Iraq, and includes all those Asian areas, um, you know, when they dig there, and they dig down deep, and they do not find any of the of the uh, the bones of of uh, prehistoric uh, animals. They don't find, uh, especially, they don't find the bones of of uh, other kinds, you know, like of life, other kinds of life, uh, human life. But when they go out from there, because the Bible says, and I'm going to read that to you, that that they were afraid to ever leave that area. They didn't want to leave that area. And that's why they wanted to build Babel, because they were afraid they were going to get scattered all over the face of the earth. And the thing that ended up happening is God did come down, and he did that very thing. He scattered them all over the face of the earth. That's what the Bible teaches. And that is what did happen. Because before that, they were not scattered. So all of these people were actually in that same area. So the flood did not have to be global to destroy all of the people 
of the world, it only had to be local to have a global effect of destroying all the people in the world. You see what I'm saying? Because they were basically all located in that, and you can prove that chronologically speaking by just taking it back from our day of the population. And it'll take you back. You keep going. You say, oh, it's only going to by the time I get to this particular age here, I only have this many people left. So this has to be it. And it'll show it to you. Now then, what else happened? Okay, let's read what really happened, why there really was a flood. Because it's not, it's not just exactly at all the reasons why most people say that it was. Uh, well, we've got to do it on tape. So, uh, let's do it in here. I'm going to let you do it. I've got a Bible. You did all kinds of notes. Okay. Yeah. You've got when, you've got comma, you've got all these things you're teaching here. Yeah. It yeah. might have sounded interesting to have seen some of them. Yeah, this is very interesting. I didn't know you had this. Yeah, I, I want to show it to you. Yeah, um, yeah I'm showing you. You see, this is something. This is not new. This is, she's, I've got this written here uh, where I've said God made a wind path over and I've got wind equals comet. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm showing the five months. And then I'm showing, um, you know, these different angles. Um, uh, and it came to pass at the end of the 40 days, no open the window of the ark which he had made. Oh, uh, you know, I don't have time to go into all that. I'm showing the parabola, the mm-hmm. curve formed by the uh, intersection of a cone and a uh, plane parallel and how that that ties in to 23 degrees. Uh, I don't have time to get into all that, but yeah, it's that's very interesting. I just wanted to say one thing, is that what always amazes me, I, I shouldn't say amaze me, but I guess it does, that is the consistency of the word. Yeah. And that uh, you've been doing this study, but you know this, I know you wrote must have written yeah. years ago when you were borrowing my Bible. Yeah. And uh, the consistency, <laughs> there was something that we were recording here, and he it got about two weeks, and I wanted him to repeat it. And I thought, oh, let's see, you know, and he started, uh, you know, repeating it. And then I found a portion of what had um, I'd, I'd recorded and I'd typed. And the amazing thing is, excepting for two or three words that are maybe like the and 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 a few things, he did it exactly. Spoke with the same as he had before, and I don't know how in the world he could do that. <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> uh-huh. All right. Uh, well, we have to be persistent, don't we? <laughs> so um, uh, what I want to share with you and this is very, very important now. Uh, yeah, that's a very, very neat find. <laughs> uh, all those little notes. Um, what I want to show you, and this, this is important, because it, it, it's really in here. Um, a chapter uh, 6 does begin with, uh, with verse, uh, uh, verse 6. Verse 1, verse 1. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh. Now what this means here is that <clears throat> we're not talking about angels that are marrying into flesh. We're not saying that they weren't angels in another life or anything like that, uh, but we're saying that that what is important here, and this is very important, is that the sons of God 
were the offspring of Seth, and they had souls. And they were intermarrying with these other people who were like the head of Kel and, and uh, you know, not the Python, because there's hardly any Python left by then, but those kind of people. And they were intermarrying with them who did not have souls. And God basically said, I'm going to give you 120 years to straighten this out. You don't get to straighten out 120 years, you know, then something's going to happen. Uh, I'm not going to put my blessing on this because this has destructive possibilities. And then it goes on and says, verse 4, there were giants in the earth in those days. Uh, and it's very, very interesting because that, the root of that word really comes uh, from the meaning to fall. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. Now, that's the thing that God is upset about. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Now, people read that and they say, ah, so all human beings were wicked. What he's really talking about here, that he finds repudiating, are these human creatures that are men, and they're flesh, and they have bodies that are human bodies, but they are intermarrying with the sons of God, the daughters of, of God, and their minds are just animalistic and dwells on animalistic things all the time. And God is just really disgusted. God through Yahweh is really disgusted that they ever went ahead with the making of of these men and 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 they didn't wait and leave it open because now they end up with the sons of God who are these fallen openings who are trying to be reborn intermarrying with these people that are supposed to eventually evolve to having the soul but they're basically still very much animals and they're really not compatible because one's called the sons of daughters of God the others are called just men so when it's talking about these men, it's really not talking about the sons and daughters of Seth. It's talking about these people that had flesh are called men, but they are the soulless men. And he said, that repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. Now, we know he's not going to say, I should have never made Adam and Eve. I should have never bothered to give them the chance to be saved. That was a mistake. I should have just let them go to hell and all the openings. That is not what I'm saying. But people don't understand this because they don't know the, the revelation of the fallen angels. Right. What it just simply is saying is that, you know, it's just absolutely too bad that they were allowed to be here on earth and mixed with these soulless people. That's really a disaster. And we've got to do something to stop this. Now, how does God go about doing it? Does he then compose all this stuff uh, with the comet and all of that? Does he uh, send some spaceships up there and say, okay, now redirect this and cause it? No. That comet was coming anyway. It was coming anyway. The floods were coming anyway. 
the ice ages were coming anyway. Just like the 18 people on the wall of was Siloam or whatever it was. That, that was going to happen anyway. Don't try to make something divine out of it. It's going to happen anyway. But the thing where God does intervene at is he puts his anointing on you and he blesses you. And when you are blessed, then you're able to receive knowledge of these impending things and how to escape them. But he doesn't go out putting judgment down. I'm going to kill everybody. I'm going to, I'm going to make them suffer. I'm going to smash their head against the rocks. He just, he's, you know, they're on the earth. This is all part of of latolution. Yeah. Call it evolution if you want to, but latolution is correct. It's all part, it's going to happen anyway. But then what he does is he blesses us so that in the blessing we can escape yeah. if we're open to it. And that's the difference. Because he lets, he, he tells us, don't judge anyone. He's not saying, look, don't, don't do what I do, but do what I tell you to do. <laughs> I judge everybody and I tell everyone, anyone I want to. But don't you do that. You be a good boy. He's not doing that. That's not his thing to me. He doesn't want to judge. He doesn't really want to judge people. He really allows people to end up judging themselves. That's what he allows them to do. And it's a simple scenario. Judge not, and you won't be judged. What a diesel. What a deal. And that's the reason this important revelation. And that's why when you read it, remember I said, be sure you don't forget this, in Second Peter, it ties the, 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 the flood, the eighth person standing out of the water, in the water of the flood and all that, and it ties it in to the angels that fell. It's all about that. That's what it's all about. It's the same consistent story. That's what it's about. And people haven't understood that. So now along comes someone, and I don't want to name any of the people from the other side of the flood. But, um, and they read it, and they say, oh, my God, if this is what God does, then I don't want nothing to do with it. But that's not the way it is. God is not doing that. It doesn't matter that it says that God did it. The people that are written that, writing this, and there's five groups of them, you know, the, there, there's the, the Elohim writers, the, the, the Yahweh writers, the priests, the prophets, etc., on and on. They're all involved in writing the Torah. They've all had a part in it. And it upset Jeremiah so much. He called them, he said they write with a false pen. He didn't agree with a lot of things they said. But that his ideas didn't necessarily went out. It was a great sales pitch. It was such a great sales pitch and story that it captivated millions of people all around the world. It became one of the greatest read, more people read the Bible than any other book in the world. Those guys at Babylon captured the world, even if they didn't have everything correct. You know, just like David, even though he did smash a bunch of heads, he still, still ended up being the one that became the, the offspring uh, from which the offspring uh, Jesus Christ came. You know, you can't knock him for that. You just can't knock him for that. You can if you want to, but it wouldn't be smart of you. Okay, now, the last part here. Oh, my. I tried to throw this in. I wish I had more time on it, but I don't. There was helpers. 
from into the ark. So it's helpless. Is it in the Bible anywhere? When we were wanting to know about Eve and about Adam, we found out that the story of Adam as a little baby was in the 16th chapter of Ezekiel. And if we turn over to the book of Psalms, let me show you something here, what the nature of, of, that, of that book is. Let me just find something here. Um, let's look at the 22nd chapter of, of, uh, of uh, Psalms. A Psalms of David. 22 verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Does that remind you of anybody else? Um, let's look down at, um, at verse 16. For the dogs have compassed me. We're 20, 22 Psalms, verse 16. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Do you really think that that was David? Oh, I don't think so. But David wrote it, and he wrote it in the, like the first person. I they kill all my bones. They looked and they stare upon, upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots for my vesture. Does that remind you of anybody? And Isaiah wrote the same way. There's all kinds of swoos in the Bible. All kinds of them. They're in the Bible. They're there. Is there anything like this for anything, anyone else? Absolutely. Turn to the 18th chapter and let's read about the flood. Verse 3. This might sound familiar. Verse 3. I will call upon the Lord who is what, worthy to be saved and praised. So I shall be saved from mine enemies. The sorrows of death compass me. And the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about the snares of death prevented me. In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. Is he, is he doing Noah here? My cry came before him into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken. Because he was wroth. And there went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth, devoured coals and kindled by it. He bowed, or bowed if you want it that way, the heavens, and came down, and darkness was under his feet. He rode upon a cherub, really, and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. It's all tied into this event. He made darkness in secret places, pavilion around about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the sky. At the brightness that was before him in thick clouds passed hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Yea, he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He shot out his lightnings and discovered them. Now listen. Then... The channels of waters were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered at thy rebuke. O Lord, at the blast of the breath of thy nostrils, and he sent from above, he took me, he drew me 
out of many waters. Oh, is this talking about Methuselah and Enoch? This talking about some people that were translated during the flood that were not on the ark? <laughs> of course it is. This is the rapture of the children of Enoch. And Methuselah. Some of them say Methuselah died. Oh, really? I find it very, very curious that a man who was so spiritual that he started the revelation of Enoch by his birth. You just read it again. And he lived 782 years after the birth of Lamech, which was his seed, which was the father of, who was the father of Noah. 782 years, which was the day of, of the flood. <laughs> the day of the flood. And we can already see from some of their math, from the examples I gave you about the two years that they were in air on, that their numbers are not always correct. Of course Methuselah did not go down with that flood. But somewhere, well, there were helpers there. Who were these helpers? There were the cherubim. And this all happened during this coming of the comet. It all happened during the breakup of the foundations of the deep. It's all right here. And this is when they reached down and they took these people and they took them up and it's all right here. And they took them out of the realm and they took them to Artura. This is how the Arturians got started. The sons of Enoch and the daughters of Enoch. And it's right here. It's a swoop right in Psalms. Because <laughs> those things didn't happen to David anymore. And someone said, oh yeah, but that happened if you go back to Samuel. You'll find, see that there's a comparative and this was happening when Saul and blah, 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 blah. I don't care. You can say what you want to say. None of those things happened to him. This is a narrative that has to do with a through that has to do with an incredible revelation and it's is comparable in some ways to the ones that in Isaiah and to the ones that I read you uh, about Jesus Christ. It's that same kind of Holy Ghost revelation. Blessed be the name of God. Oh, and he rolled out a cherub. <laughs> That's the cherubim. And he drew me out of the water. What a beautiful description. Away from the flood. He drew me. Drew me up. It's all there, ladies and gentlemen. And this whole thing now makes the Bible make sense, <coughs> revelates the Bible, expresses the Bible, kisses the Bible, because the Bible is a wondrous book. Amen. And the manifest says the power of the Holy Spirit is so great that even if a fragment of truth is left in a verse, that the Holy Spirit can take that fragment and can cause from that fragment there to resurrect the whole truth and nothing but the whole truth. So help us God. Hallelujah. Praise be the name of the living God. Hallelujah. Glory to Jesus Christ. Thank you, Almighty God. Uh, we are living in the most exciting time. Amen. And it's there. It's in the book. 
doesn't take a lot. But don't try to take a look if you don't have an interpreter. And David was the light of that era that he was in. And God raises up people to be a light in the east. It's not because they're special. It's because God is special in his love. Amen. And he chooses a stick and says, okay, this stick I'll anoint, and I will cause this to happen. And he chose someone like Paul, who had been into all kinds of things. But he got anointed. And once you get anointed for a job, you become the light bearer. And God is not the kind of person that just switches someone on and off like a light switch. Oh, gosh, this guy crapped. Oh, I'm taking it away from him. <laughs> or maybe the guy didn't crap, but the whole world thought he did. They'll take it away because they think he did. Listen to me, people. The Goliaths are out there. And they would like to kill this message. They'd like to destroy the manifest. They don't want this kind of truth to get out because it exonerates the Bible. It exonerates the holy works of God. It raises the light in the minds of people in the most astounding and glorious way. And gives hope to the them who have fallen that they will one day be redeemed and returned to be made equal with the angel status that they once had. Hallelujah. Praise the name of yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Let's glorify the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so, there's other things I would like to get into, but I think that that's good enough. It's a quarter after 11, and we've got some wonderful food downstairs. And then before it gets uh, to be 12, we'll have some shouts and praises the Lord type of stuff. Could we just do one thing here before we get down? Could we sing Happy Birthday to Myra? Yes. So we're going to, we have a wonderful... Uh, Ice cream cake, which we'll get out of the freezer. <laughs> and this today is Myra's birthday, so let's do it. Start it up again. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Myra. Happy birthday to you. Okay, so now, um, Cy, where are you at? You already down? Yeah. yeah. He's off with God. He's ready. So, we'll meet downstairs, folks. You can just make yourself at home. You can wander around up here, sit up here, go down. But I think you'll want to go down because the food is in the pantry. Downstairs. God bless you. <laughs> Um, to get this straight, um, a comet, and it's really beautiful as you stated, this is going to happen anyway, so basically these people are pretty prepared, okay, by God, in advance, I mean, that's really what it is. Now, some new things that I didn't say, I wish I could have said, and that was that, for instance, the ark was not only a chamber that protected them from the blood, but it was a, a, a chamber that was airtight, and so it protected them from pressurization that were oscillating, okay. because of, you know, so it's 
But I never got a chance to say, okay, now let's be clear. The comment was actually part of the Rising of the Water, so that correct, created by the title of the Yeah, what caused that? Okay, now in addition to that, the purpose that was for the excellent preparation of this latest geological information. Is it possible? Is it possible if you could get that on the mic? Okay. Okay. Um, and the of the material that he brought out of the Scientific American, yeah, the latest geological information, I mean, um, overwhelming amount of um, uh, lava uh, in the mantle uh, and, and water actually beneath. Uh, yeah, it's inside the mantle. Yeah. Uh, well, oftentimes more. Uh, yeah, the volume is a thousand okay. one, and the the density is five right. thousand. And given the the, the many um, of these, what do you call them, gushers, or some other term, clues uh, coming up, is it possible that most of the basin of the Mediterranean could have actually been lifted up, even for a temporary period of time, maybe, or maybe as a result of? This comment coming through, or uh, even a coincidental thing. There's an incredible neat thing that has to do. There's an incredible neat thing that has to do with the floor of the Mediterranean. I mean, it, at one point it totally dried out of water, mm -hmm. and and of course uh, uh, this same geological crew that that did the filming and the discovery in the Black Sea also did a discovery of some ancient ruins very deep in the Mediterranean. Uh, all the grief, which is all part of manifest right. stuff that we've said. And but you know, I just I didn't have the time to go into that other part of it. But but uh, it's just extremely interesting. And I might put this on tape because I don't think it got on tape. And that is that in addition to the ark serving as a uh, place to preserve against the storms and the water, uh, it was also of a nature that it was pressurized. It, it could be pressurized so that as there were alternating uh, uh, currents that were happening uh, from some of this tremendous hydraulic uh, situations, that uh, they were able to sort of be uh, into some kind of an equal liberal uh, as long as they were within the, the art there. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that I asked the question was uh, one of the, um, the points that the anti have to have overwhelming amounts of rain. Uh, over far more a period of time than what the Bible says that it rains. Okay. That's why I was thinking in order to help the rising of that ship, okay, to, ele to elevate so quickly that in addition to, you know, these, but actually, or the water's actually rising, yeah. all right, actually this protrusion that's actually lifting up of the, from the pressure from within. That's well, yeah. Uh, actually, uh, that's one of the big things, and that is that the Bible never did claim in any way that the rain is what caused the flood. It just—it was just uh, a phenomenal after effect of the fountains of the deep. And when the fountains of the deep came up, uh, they were—they were coming up, and they're also push, pushing up continental uh, masses. And so all kinds of upheavals are happening. That's in generating hydraulic push of the water and upheavals of the of the uh, ocean floor and and so it isn't it isn't the rain and they're quite correct when they say that uh and that's a you know I, that was in several of the books here it's definitely not the rain that uh that caused the flood uh 
because that, like even right now, if all the water in the atmosphere was rained on the Earth, it would only cover the Earth 30, 30 feet, which would not cover the mountain.